This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Kevin Mack. How you doing, Kevin? Oh, not too bad. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a little bit of a gloomy week here in the northern Midwest, but uh, we're going to talk about some fun stuff today, so maybe that'll help cheer people up, especially in this region. Um, but before we get started, Kevin, why don't you give us a little background about yourself and what you do and uh, what's your job like? Yeah, no, I could definitely do that. Yeah, so my current title is actually I'm a creative director and my, I guess, professional career has been kind of from a designer and developer. Uh, so I started my career at a really, really young age and I grew up in a house of art. So my mom was a art director at the Washington Post in the 70s. So she taught me how to draw, appreciate art, and really start understanding it from the moments even before I could talk. And in the early 90s, so uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up around having computers, and I started web development in 95. And as the internet kind of evolved, and especially things like CSS when it came out in 96, in some of the original design programs, I was starting to make original artwork and graphic design on the web. And I kind of got to merge my love and passion for art and this new hobby of computer development together. And I kind of fell in love with computers in the mid 90s. And as the public internet took off, I was kind of at the right place at the right time, started making. Uh, a lot of websites for small businesses in town, family members, friends of friends, families. And uh, then from there, I kind of jumped on being a head of a digital marketing group uh, for the home industry and wrote a CRM system and created an online sales program. Did many, many fun things around then and then jumped around for being a consultant, working at agencies. Uh, and in those various years was a print designer, a graphic designer, a web designer, a UI architect, a back-end architect, uh, mobile dev, uh, manager, and art director, and a creative director. So wide range of being senior developers to different director levels and managers. It's been kind of a wild ride. and. Uh, one of my biggest things is just I'm passionate about what I do. I love what I do. And I've been fortunate to, I guess, be in the right place at the right time. And every day I come into work and try to have as much fun as I can. So that's what I really love about our industry. Like you and I have very similar backgrounds. My mom and my sister are both artists by trade. So grew up with pens and, and markers and paintbrushes in my hand and always had the artistic side of things, but I'm a very technical person. Uh, so I got into software and, and computers at a very young age and uh, kind of mashed those things together with web design mm-hmm. and development. So that you know that's something that's unique, I think, about our industries. We, we have all these diversities of skills 
um, that kind of bring us all together in, in different ways. Like you have developers that are good at design, you have developers that have these um, immense musical talents, and uh, there's all this weird crossover that you, you kind of see throughout the industry that I just haven't seen in other places I've, I've worked. I, I completely agree. It's one of the most fascinating industries of all time or anything that you could ever imagine. And it's a creative outlet. Uh, I'm one of those people that thinks a developer is an artist and web design is an art form. It's a true art form in my mind and for the people that I work with and the work that I do. And every single day, the challenges that come across the problem solving I, I couldn't imagine doing another job or doing anything else. It's, it's just so awesome when you're faced with a problem and you're not sure what the solution is, but whether you're collaborating with people or trying to figure it out on yourself, just the success of coming up with a solution and maybe doing something that no one has ever done before is just really, really cool. Absolutely. And a lot of the things, and a lot of things we do, we get to make from nothing which is also outrageous. It's not like we need to have buy materials. We just need our computers and a text editor and we could make something happen. Absolutely. Yeah, even even folks that don't do front-end work, uh, you know, I feel like they're they're very much designers too. Like I always tell people, even if you're doing back-end development, you're developing APIs, you're designing APIs that other developers are going to use. And you yeah. know, there's there's another user experience story to be told there. Uh, so people that say they can't draw a straight line, but you know, don't want to credit themselves to being uh, a creative person, I think they're doing themselves a disservice. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. So we've got some cool topics to talk about. Um, we're we're going to chat a little bit about some some UI patterns that you're working on. Uh, so let's kick things off there. Uh, tell me a little bit about this project that you you've kind of bitten off. Yeah. So one of my things I'm, I'm heavily involved with community and also open source projects. So community, I mean physical communities and people. Uh, so I'm in Columbus, Ohio, so the, the physical people here in Columbus, but also the online communities and building frameworks or uh, standards for, that people can use and apply to their work. So uh, in my career, I've also been fortunate to work on some specs and drafts that have actually made it into browsers. So I was part of the picture, uh, the responsive images community, so I worked on the use cases for the picture element as well as source set. And I've educated people in my community and I do online training and mentoring sessions uh, about architecture for interface design and development. And with that, I've come up with a series of patterns uh, that are based off of traditional specs and interpretation of the pieces that are the guidelines for writing quality code. And with that, this framework that I'm writing, it, it's not really your traditional UI framework. It's about helping aid the in the development process and making sure that you're following the standards. So I simplify it by saying it's a skinless UI, uh, skinless UI architecture and a development tool. So it started with uh, my buddy Luke Eskewen and myself when we worked at uh, an agency together, we, we created a project called Fabricator. And that kind of changed into something over the years. And he and I primarily argued about, uh, he's one of my good friends, but we, he and I argued about 
uh, architecture a lot. And I went one way and he continued going down his path and his project ended up being quite successful, but it's just a developer aid tool. And myself being more focused on the actual architecture of the UI, I started um, without even realizing it, building out a series of components and reusable modules that are interface patterns that all work well together. So every month this year, I've been releasing small projects. Uh, majority of them are public at this point, and I release them on my code pen. And they're snippets of code that, again, help aid in the development process and help in the architecture. So this skinless UI framework that I'm building right now with myself and some other people isn't a collection of just components, but it's really an outline of architecture to create the an interface based off your own content, your own branding, your own design look and feel, and trying to alleviate some of the complexity that comes with uh, UI design development, especially across the digital landscape. Uh, some examples of these components are, I wrote a scalable, uh, scalable text library that's only in CSS. And this is on my code pen, my code pen's uh, codepen.io slash nice transition. And inside there, it's just using some tricks inside of CSS and some wizardry that probably the average front-end developer wouldn't know that you could do these things, but because of my uh, vast knowledge in CSS as well as the specs, I'm able to come up with these solutions that most people would never think are even imaginable to do with CSS and still have them work across multiple browsers and then write them in such a way that if the capability isn't there, it's going to fall back into a really nice experience for traditional or legacy browsers. Uh, I also wrote a repeatable pattern in CSS library. I also put out naming conventions for colors, which uh, kind of gets over that one of the biggest hurdles of communication from designers to developers or even uh, from developer to developer and creating a series of how you write your variables and how you name things and uh, common patterns that come up in colors, as well as a library that I'm referring to as suffixcate, and it's aligning to uh, spec that I'm actually working on right now with the uh, responsive issues community, which is called the element query, and how you can uh, write CSS around a container and have responsive solutions not just be on the viewport, but by having queries on a parent container. Uh, and then also wrote some stuff on a methodology that I wrote uh, that's called object-oriented typography. Uh, and I I also have a RAM to M, an M to RAM, a pixel to M or RAM uh, library. So lots of little like snippets of code, but they're really just best practices uh, and hopefully code that you can open, look at, and be like, oh, so this is what someone with 20 plus years of uh, CSS experience, how they write their code. And this is portable code that can be applied to any of my projects and avoid any collision with any other libraries that I'm using. Yeah, so let's let's bite off uh, one of these and try to kind of flesh out some of the details because um, mm -hmm. I think uh, these are really interesting. Um, let's let's talk about the scalable text one a little bit. What exactly yeah. does this tool do? So um, this does many things. So I, I refer to it as scalable text, and basically all it does is in CSS. Uh, 
or I guess the user agent has by default a base root font size of 16 pixels unless you change it from your settings um, in your operating system. Now, how CSS works in inheritance of the cascading effects of CSS, that pixel is inherited all the way throughout. Now, there's what's referred to as REMs or, and M's or EMs or REMs, as some people may say, but I say REMs and M's. Mm -hmm. Now, a REM is based off the root uh, font size. So as I said, the traditional browser has 16 pixels. If I do two REMs on a, uh, for a value of font size, it outputs 32 pixels. Now, there's a lot of benefits for this, and uh, browsers have gotten smart enough to do it. But that's just kind of the base understanding to get into how this works. So RAMs are more of like a multiplier based off the root font size. And then an M is based off of the inherited size multiplied out. So if I have a container that has 32 pixels and I have a property inside there that has two M's, it would then output to 64 at that point. So how this library works is it you can apply um, it's actually written in SAS, so there's a mixin, and you say, what is your root font size? What do you want to scale the font size up to, and what do you want it to be the minimum? So you can set a maximum size and a minimum size for your font to scale for, say, like an H1. So I could keep, create a class that's called like scalable header, and I could say, all right, my root font size is 16 pixels, and I want this to scale up to a maximum of 800 pixels. If I had a, a uh, monitor that would allow me to do that, I could do that. And I never want to get below 16 pixels. So as my browser gets bigger, that header is going to scale all the way up until it reaches its maximum of 800 pixels, which would be near impossible to meet. Uh, and then if I scale my browser, say, to maybe like 200 pixels wide, I could hit the minimum of 16 pixels. So it allows me to have my font scale up and down. Now, one of the really cool benefits of this is I don't need to just apply it as text. I can apply the scaling factor to actually my default root size. So as I said, the browser's user agent has 16 pixels. I can actually, actually use this library and use that scale at my root font size. Uh, and in CSS, there's what is called the root, and it's colon root and the curly brackets. And if you apply this library inside there, what it allows you to do is scale your whole interface from large to small. And it keeps it in the same aspect ratio. So you have this really cool effect where your images as well as your text, your containers, are scaling to get smaller and bigger. So I do a lot of work with responsive and contextual design. Uh, one of the biggest things that people do incorrectly when designing an interface is once you reach that max width, a lot of people think that you need to add a new column or add a new component because you have additional width on your browser. So my 26 monitor, let's try to fill it up. In reality, the larger monitors are meant for more of the power users that's dividing up their windows or someone that's using it to, for entertainment and is farther away from it. So one of the things that I've definitely seen wrong is people trying to put too much on these bigger screens. Mm -hmm. And using something like this library, what you can do is once you hit your max width, you can start scaling up your entire interface to fulfill the width of your, of your actual monitor. Where this gets really beneficial is if you're thinking about how you design for TVs or large monitors. The larger your monitor, 
the less likely you're going to be as close to it. So like our, our traditional uh, laptop, we're probably a foot or two away from it at all times. But our larger monitors, we may be two to three feet away. And the bigger ones, we may actually be farther away from it. And the actual uh, output and the resolution usually needs to be increased because the farther we're away from something, the bigger we need things to be scaled up. So this is just one approach that you can have to scale up your fonts and also your entire interface. So even though it's just text, it can be applied to everything. Yeah, so I want to put some importance on this because I actually worked on a project where I, I actually used something uh, similar to this that I had to build from scratch. So mm -hmm. to put this in context for people, like, you know, you think of typical software development is you're making an app for a phone or a laptop or a desktop. Well, with responsive web, you know, you can go pretty much any size from a watch to as, as big as a billboard. Um, and if done correctly and you know what type of users you're targeting, um, you can actually do some pretty interesting things. So a project I was working on, um, I actually was required to make some uh, reporting displays. And these were um, metrics that were being seen by developers on a shop floor. So picture, you know, a machine running and it's building X widgets per hour. And uh, there's a real-time report being uh, put up on displays uh, that shows like how many pieces per minute, how many uh, pieces are going into rework and that sort of thing, right? So uh, what I did is I built a responsive web uh, application and one of the views that we had actually ran on a mobile device all the way up to like a 55 inch uh, television that was running a kiosk software. So we had this web browser that was on this gigantic TV that was running on a shop floor and that UI would scale up and it would display all of the machine statistics to the operators on the floor. And then the supervisors could also pull it up there on their phone in their office and check the same stats with the same UI. So you think about responsive web, like there's, you know, the, the typical developer situation where you're, you're talking about um, like commercial websites and things like that. But then there's these other, you know, cases where you have uh, industrial manufacturing and all kinds of uh, interesting scenarios where um, there's all types of devices that you might not see on a daily basis accessing the application. You know, it's really funny that you bring up that example because uh, my initial playing with scaling was I, I worked on a billboard that was in Times Square. And this was, I'm going to say, about six years ago. And I didn't think about a CSS solution. I actually had to write it in JavaScript. And so it's just like really funny. Like my first interpretation of like scaling stuff for a billboard is now a way that I would say, don't ever do it, <laughs> don't do it that way. And where this library or this piece of, you know, this is just one piece of my uh, skinless toolkit that I'm writing, but where this came, was derived from was an event that I was putting on last year and another open source project I was working on, which was a live Insta Instagram feed uh, at an event. So as people take photos, it shows the photos on the wall or through a projector. And there were, we had three or four different projectors inside of the event, and they were all different sizes. And then we, so I was like, hmm, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't really have time to test it out. 
So if I just write this to be scalable, then it's going to work no matter what the context is. And because I wrote it that way, we were even, even able to put it up on TVs and have it throughout the entire event. So as people were uploading photos, it became part of the event and the interface was just built once, but it was like scaling up and down really, really easily. You can actually, it's somewhere on my code pen, the initial UI for that. Um, and that's where I derived uh, this, I guess, little snippet of it, which is pretty cool. And uh, the other projects as well as this one are all gonna go on GitHub. Uh, imagine, I'm trying, like my long-term goal would be to create something like, uh, Ooh, they're probably going to, these are probably going to be eventually into uh, NPM, but kind of a library of flexible architecture and skinless components that you can kind of put together and they become building blocks based off of what you need. Now, again, they're not going to be a solution for the entire interface, but they're going to be these pieces and parts that, you know, you, you may not be able to wrap your head around. Uh, to write from scratch and they become the helpers to get you in the place where you can start customizing or bringing in your frameworks and different toolkits that you have out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a an awesome like idea to have all these little uh, helper tools. Like uh, I don't know how many yeah. times, you know, I use a um, pixel to EM or EM to pix. <laughs> Uh, yeah. you know, tool. I always have to go out and find it because it's in another open source library and I don't always use the entire open source library. So I have to go like to GitHub and then navigate through the source code where I know to find it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, being a developer, I should know better and put that somewhere and, and, uh, make it reusable, but I never have, um, you know, and, and that was uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because I'm so bad at keeping bookmarks and remembering where things are. I'm just like, if I start just spending and being organized myself and sharing my knowledge with other people, I'll at least remember the code that I wrote and know where I put it. It's amazing and, what your brain will like store because yeah. I, I cannot tell you like the, the code for it. It's not a lot of code. And well, it. I can, it, it I can is tell actually, you like the repository and probably the line of code it's sitting on. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it the uh, doing the rems to ems doesn't seem that difficult in SAS. It really is. So uh, I have that on my code pen too. I, th it's, I think it's one of my featured ones. And uh, I'm using a third party vendor or a third party library inside my library to make it happen. Now the actual mathematics behind it and the equation to get the number is easy. Where it gets hard is identifying if it's a string or a number. Because in SAS you have to do these like multiplications mm -hmm. and it identifies that it's a number or an integer. But then it can get easily lost in some of these calculations that you do and it thinks it's a string. So you have to identify and remove the element at the end and convert that pixel over to another uh, so take the pixel, the actual value that's a pixel, remove the pix, do the math for it, and then add back in the uh, the new value, whether it's an M or M. So it's one of those things, it's, the math's really easy, and it's really easy to explain how it works, but to actually write something that is going from pix to Ms or Ms to pixels, there's a lot of back and forth that you have to do with those actual values that are attached to it, that are 
you know, kind of a pain to deal with. Yeah, it's it's always that validation scenario that catches you on, on any good code, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, well, the yeah, user and, goes in yeah, there and hammers in like uh, letters instead of numbers. It's it's not going to work out too well. My, my initial version of it was about a tenth of the length, and what happened was I realized that it wasn't actually working. It was outputting the right values, but it was outputting them at strings not as uh, actual like pixels, like 16 pixels or 2Ms or whatever it may be, which is read differently in SAS. So if I wanted to do math then on the return value, I couldn't. It would see it as a string, not as an integer or a value with a, uh, I guess, a measurement or a unit attached to it. And It's interesting stuff that comes up. That's another um, one of those things where uh, you know, it takes somebody that's got that artistic background to kind of identify these problems where you, you need to use those kind of tools for scaling things and, and uh, making sure white space is consistent and then converting those values to apply to M so things scale rather than be a solid pixel value. Yep. Yeah, so, um, sure. I wanted to get off to another topic while we still have some time, because uh, before we started recording, we, we chatted just a little bit about um, some AI ideas that you had. And uh, I love AI or machine learning. Um, th those types of uh, fields of study are interesting to me, yet I've done absolutely nothing with them. But they're fun to talk about. So, so what was this AI idea you were kind of riffing about earlier? Yeah, so this is one of those far out ideas that started talking about and trying to get interest in the development community and people that I traditionally work on projects with. Uh, so the idea is to create a an AI developer. Now, the start of it, it's going to be more of a bot that collects information. So the use case for this is you have this bot that's in a room and as developers or team members are whiteboarding and talking about a project in the architecture, this bot is listening and it's listening to certain keywords or phrases that become triggers. And based off these keywords and phrases, it starts actually writing the code for you and setting up the project to get those steps out of the way for you. Uh, it's also, I guess, relatable to um, how I've explained it to certain people is like there's CoffeeScript which is a preprocessor or a syntax for writing JavaScript. But CoffeeScript outputs JavaScript at the end. But CoffeeScript exists to kind of remove some of the complexities of writing complex JavaScript. So the idea here is as you say certain keywords or phrases, it writes the code for you. And by speaking in these certain ways, it's also training developers to talk code which is a skill set that every developer should have, but very few developers actually do. Uh, if people ever have the opportunity to interview or talk to a Google, an Amazon, a Facebook, or a Twitter, one of the common things that they have you do in an interview is to talk through some code. Or they, they talk to you about code and you have to respond back on how you would approach it or what that would actually mean or output. So it's not just to write the code, but it's also to help aid in the communication between developers. And as this bot is listening, it's going to start, the idea is to collect these conversations 
and start learning what people actually wanted them to do. And this is where the AI of it comes from. So again, it starts off as a bot that is listening to certain triggers and writing those code based off of the phrases that it knows to listen to. And from there, collecting what it was supposed to be doing and over time creating its own interpretation of the human language or development speak into writing applications. Uh, so it's just really a pre-compiler that's based off of verbal communication, meant to be in a team setting. It's not to replace the development process, it's to aid and to get a team to collaborate uh, better and to get a kind of a working setup or architecture, maybe even a prototype without having to open up a single uh, a single text editor. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I want to say, like, we need to make sure that when we um, start, you know, in, going in on an endeavor like this, that we we fine tune the um, the machine learning to uh, the the people and not the other way around. Because, you know, people will like kind of change their their own speech patterns and things when they know something works <laughs> so they'll, they'll change the context of it so what we don't want is like a bunch of people walking around speaking cucumber <laughs> yeah. no, no and uh you know th that's the difference between uh you know I i'm fascinated by screenless design and or the screenless interface and things like the amazon echo or the google home and uh your series or cortana that, that are really have matured in a way that is more common speed. Mm -hmm. Like the first day I, I plugged in my Amazon Echo, it was creepy. It was the first time, like I, of course, I've used Siri, I used OK Go, but it was the first time that I had something that spoke to me that actually had a sense of human feel to it. Uh, and I knew it was fake, and especially the longer you have it, you realize that the verbal commands are the same. Mm -hmm. But it just had this really nice human feel. And you could speak to it, and it could understand what you meant. And you could ask the question five different ways, but it could give you the response. And it, it felt like it knew what you wanted by you speaking the way that you do. Uh, and, th and that's really the goal of this project, is not to make us be like the initial days of our Siri, where we'd have to be like, Siri? Phone, oh, I messed up. Siri, call Kevin Mack. Yeah. And then it'd be like, no, I didn't recognize it. Siri, call Kevin Mack's iPhone. I can see like, and then it would the work. break room in the year 2020. Like, given <laughs> Kevin has gotten coffee and there is no more coffee, when <laughs> should yeah, Kevin it, refill but, the coffee? And, and well, it, it's funny that you, like you would say a phrase like that because like writing Gherkin and uh, doing things around like BDD, uh, uh, it, it seems like the natural way to speak about writing software, uh, but that's not the way people talk. Right. So it needs to be smarter than even like Gherkin, even though that 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 makes sense. Uh, but that's its own language to begin with. So. So it's uh, it's getting in flight right now. It's uh, early stages, trying to figure out the technology. And uh, right now, we're working on a prototype and just using speech speech recognition in HTML5 um, as a prototype for it. And you'd be amazed if you haven't played with that how amazing that spec is and how accurate it is, at least from OS X and Chrome. 
um, to record a snippet of code. Even if you like mumble, it's one of the best that, I, that I've seen. And it's funny, it's just built into the browser. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I think somebody could probably have like a weekend hack where they could create something like this where... You know, you could just sit down at your computer and pull up like a Cortana or one of the the virtual assistants and just be like, today I need to write a new Angular 2 application. And your console opens up and it types out, you know, ng uh, init or new project name (laughs) and just, you know, starts hashing out a couple things on the command line just based off of the fact that you know you need to start up a new Angular application and it knows yeah. what the the CLI commands are to, to fire that up and get it going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and my mind goes into like those uh, '80s movies, early '90s movies, where uh, someone would turn on their computer and it was like that the green, like the black background, <laughs> green text. And it would be like, "Hello, Kevin," and it would like sometimes like say it in that really computerized voice. Like <laughs> so that's like. Game? Yeah, like uh, that's that's what I actually want to make. I want to make the computer that that speaks to me and actually is writing code for me. <laughs> that's that's the weird dream and inspiration that maybe was embedded deep in my head. Yeah, I don't I don't think it'll be too far off. Uh, I think some of those type um, of things will will come about whether yeah uh, the community picks it up or if you just build it yourself. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's in um, the cards. I mean, it's. It's the natural progression of things, I think. Yep, agreed. Um, so we were talking about um, some things regarding your local uh, developer groups. So you're in Columbus, and uh, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of stuff you know, happening with meetups and uh, teaching other folks how to code or, or just doing hackathons. And um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your group and, and some of the success you've had there. Yeah, so I uh, started the Columbus Web Group three and a half years ago with my buddy Adam Weiss. Uh, it was derived from internal education that I was doing at an agency. And Adam moved from Cleveland. He was uh, one of the organizers for the Cleveland Web Standards Group. Uh, and when he started at the agency, he was like, man, this content's really good. Have you ever thought about doing it publicly? And I was like, no do you want to do that with me? And he said, sure. So then we started the Columbus web group. Um, and from the beginning, it was just this idea that Adam and I had to provide free education for designers and developers in the city of Columbus. Fast forward three and a half years later, we have over 2000 members in our group. We average 75 people that come to our meetups, uh, 75 to 120 people that come to our meetups. It's become this environment, this network uh, that's very safe, for individuals to feel comfortable. I've met some of my closest friends from the group and I know other people have created these uh, relationships and uh, people that they trust and rely on day to day now that they met through the Columbus Web Group. We've helped more than uh, I would say at least 20 people get new jobs, switch careers or uh, to find a better path in their life. So we do monthly meetups. Uh, we work with our presenters really closely. It's traditionally three to four months out in advance. Uh, and the reason why we work so closely with our presenters is we have a diverse group. We have designers. We have developers from junior to senior level. 
We have high school students. We have college students. We have people looking to switch their career. We have project managers. We have people that are just interested in trends showing up to our events. And our primary goal with our meetups is to inspire people. So if we're doing a development talk, a designer should be able to come to it and still leave like they learn, feeling like they've learned something or apply it to their next day. And that goes for other types of topics. Uh, so our goal is just inspire people. And then outside the monthly meetups, we do what are called weekend workshops. And the weekend workshops were kind of a breakaway from more high level uh, talks that we do at our monthly meetups. So our monthly meetups are traditionally methodologies, best practices, and approaches and trends uh, where our weekend workshops are on specific topics uh, that are targeted to the group. So they are limited to 10 people per class and they go up to four weeks long. They happen on Saturdays and we limit them to 10 people per class uh, because we want to make it a contextual or personalized learning experience. And they sell out super quick. The quickest was within two minutes. The longest one was 26 hours. And that was on a very obscure talk, kind of. It was on a specific piece of BDD. Um, and that still managed to sell out within 26 hours. But if you get into the class, we send an email to you, a uh, personalized email that says, what do you want to get out of this class? And what's your background? And then we base the course around those 10 individuals. And it becomes this really close, safe area to learn from an expert and to create a network of 10 people that are all trying to learn a topic and uh, learn at the rate that they need to learn at. Recently, we've kicked off a third item, which is our mentoring program. And over the years, I've been mentoring a lot of people. I've been mentored and uh, spun off different mentoring programs. Uh, and with that, through trial and error, came out with um, a program that could work in a public setting. So the mentoring program, we as a group, so the Columbus Web Group now is myself. Uh, I have Sean Duran, uh, Laura uh, Jackson, as well as Brian Vogel, who helped me organize uh, both the monthly meetups and the weekend workshops and now our mentoring program. So we help pair up individuals, mentors and mentees. And the example I like to give uh, is in this initial pairing, if someone says they want to learn front-end development and the mentee says, I want to learn front-end development and we have a mentor that does front-end development. Now, through a conversation with that mentee, say we realize that they want to learn just Angular or the JavaScript MV Star frameworks. The mentor that we initially had in mind was maybe more of a UI dev. So before even introducing the individuals by getting to know our mentors and mentees, we can make sure that we're pairing the right people up and not make the mistake of pairing up someone that says, like, I'm going to learn front end and pairing up a mentor and mentee that are front end people, but making sure that it's specific and related to them and their specific needs and working very closely with the community on doing that. So after we do the introductions, uh, they do a kickoff meeting where the mentee kind of spills out everything that they want to learn and the mentor becomes their advisor and says, all right, you want to be on step 20, but in reality, let's just get the step one and get that foundation. And a mentor can have up to uh, three mentees per session that they do. And it's actually beneficial to have two mentees per uh, mentoring session because the mentees can learn from each other. So after the introductions, kickoffs, then it starts what are referred to as the sessions. And we're recommending four to six sessions. And the sessions are just a commitment to say, we're gonna meet for one hour for the next four to six weeks consecutively. And in between our meetings 
and that one hour commitment, I'm gonna make myself available to you as a mentor to answer any questions, to provide homework, to provide you links, the resources, the places that I go and I have been to, the places of how, where I started and how I got here today. And then it all ends with a final deliverable. And the final deliverable is based off of, uh, to validate what the mentee or mentees have learned in the program and to kind of show off to the mentor that they have learned something and present it to them. And it doesn't have to be something as tangible as an application or even code. It could just be presenting or describing the topic. Because a mentoring program isn't just skill sharing, it's also the relationship building and creating a personal relationship between two to three people and having a connection that you would never get anywhere else. Um, for the final deliverables, we're working with local businesses here in town as well as startups to identify programs or applications, wants and needs that they have and have individuals that need to build out their portfolio to maybe get their first job or switch their careers and give them an opportunity to build out something really cool and have a mentor being there to support them in that process of creating that, that final deliverable. Uh, we're also working with local businesses here in town to set up locations where people can meet with their mentor or mentee and get a free coffee or a discounted coffee or dinner or whatever it may be. So we're trying to not just make it be about skill sharing and creating a network of people, but also help out local businesses and startups here in town. Um, for me and where this initial idea came from with Adam, it's it's been amazing. Uh, it keeps me going and it pushes me to do more every single day and I'm inspired by the people that come to the events, the passion of uh, the people I've gotten the opportunity to meet and uh, I, I wish every community had something similar to it and the communities that do, I love hearing their own stories because I'm always trying to adapt, grow and modify what I'm doing to meet the needs of everyone that's in our group. So uh, I encourage those that are in areas that don't have something similar to Columbus Web Group uh, to try to build it. It's really not that hard. It, it does require a lot of time on my behalf, but that's because this is what I do for fun and it's what I love doing. And I couldn't imagine spending my time doing anything else outside of my uh, in my evenings than doing this. Yeah, I, I don't and I'm more than happy to help out. Identified that, that you're doing all this uh, for people to do for free. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is all, and this is 100% free. So our meetups are, think, yeah. You, you didn't say it, but I wanted the listeners to know that, you know, these aren't yeah. things that you're charging for. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're not a nonprofit. We're not a for-profit. I jokingly say we're a for-loss. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I put a lot of money, and so do the other organizers, into this. I'm thankful for the people that sponsor, the people from the community that are privately uh, helping us put on our events. It costs a lot of money. It does take a lot of time, but we want to make this be free education for uh, the people of Columbus. Uh, and our meetups, our workshops, the mentoring program are all free. And you made me also think of the last piece. So we are starting one other initiative, which is hopefully going to happen next year. It's called Coding with Kids. And it's to target the uh, children around the ages of 10 to 12. And the reason why 10 and 12, it's an interesting age. There's a lot of people that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with 
and they all seem to have gotten started around the ages of 10 to 12. And I think that's a, a critical time in your life where you're really starting, it's preteen, you're starting to find who you are, you're becoming a little bit independent, but you're not independent. And I think it's at that time where you're inspired so much. And I think back to when I was, you know, nine to, to 12, my mind was always wandering. I, I think I had the worst ADD back then, but I was just trying to absorb things and I was curious. And that curiosity, uh, I think it's a really great thing to get people into design and to get them into development in those curiosity days. So we're gonna be doing something very similar to our weekend workshops, but doing it for the ages of 10 to 12, uh, personalized to that age group. They're gonna be on design topics and development topics, and we're not doing things like Scratch. We're actually teaching them the real languages, the real programs, the Photoshops, the sketches, the potential .NET, the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript. Because at that age, you're smart, uh, and I don't think people give children that age enough credit. And uh, I almost feel like it's easier to teach a 10-year-old than maybe someone that's in their mid-30s uh, because their mind is more absorbent and uh, curious. Less bad habits to break. Uh, yeah, and definitely less bad habits. So where this is also going to be different than other things like coding with kids, uh, programs that are out there, we're going to be educating the children in one room, but then we're, we're inviting the parents to also come, but they're not going to be in the same room. We're going to be teaching the same curriculum uh, to the children as we are to the parents. And why that's important is the parents can then become aware of what their children are learning and understand how to empower them and identify what are some of the things to be listening to to your children to make sure that you're not pushing them down the path and making sure that this is the right thing for them and how you can support them in a development or design uh, creative outlet. So pretty excited about that. I, I'm working with some local schools here in town uh, to make sure uh, it can all come together. It's kind of a nightmare to put together, but I'm going to be, I think, most pleased when that does happen. Yeah, all of these community-based projects you're talking about, I think, do a whole lot more service for uh, the diversity of the the industry more than anything else could possibly do. I think this gives an opportunity for people that that don't have... Uh, the means to get formal education or uh, have the money to, to have the tooling or, or even just know somebody that uh, has the knowledge uh, to show them where to, to go learn more, um, how to get into, into the business and uh, gives people much more opportunity to have a real career than just a job. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so... Kevin, it's been great talking to you, man. Um, I really appreciate you uh, having time to to record the show with me. Um, are there any last uh, um, links or web pages or anything you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, uh, I think the easiest way to, I guess, to communicate and follow up on some of the things I'm doing is just my Twitter, and I'm very active on there, and I love meeting new people. So I definitely encourage people to reach out to me. Uh, my Twitter is nice transition. And it's also the same handle that I use on CodePen. Uh, but, you know, reach out to me on Twitter. And I, I love communicating, whether it's about some of the projects I'm working on. If you have questions about CSS, HTML, JavaScript, or want to geek out about some AI stuff, uh, this is, I enjoy talking about it. Or if you want to hear more about how to start up your own meetup group or community in your local town, 
um, I'd be more than happy to help you with that. Awesome. Uh, we'll also include links to uh, that stuff in our show notes at developer.telerk.com. So if you want to get links to um, Kevin's Twitter and his meetup group and things like that, we'll put those in there as well. Uh, so we'll have that up on the site. So thanks a lot, Kevin. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time. It's an honor to be on this. So thank you. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>